couple of notes this morning. Um, Pastor Mark mentioned uh, our prayer for Dwayne. I think he said Dwayne Baldwin. He meant to say Dwayne Blakeman. It's easy to do. We, uh, there's too many Dwaynes. But uh, Dwayne uh, Blakeman is recovering well. And uh, so we want to continue to pray for him. And also Maury will be having surgery on Tuesday. So please remember Maury. Um, he's a good brother, and we pray that God would bless uh, his surgery um, in uh, this week. So with that said, let's go before the Lord in prayer as we get ready for this morning's sermon. Let's pray. Father, we just pause to thank you for this opportunity to sit in front of your word. And Lord, I acknowledge my utter and total dependence upon you um, to preach in a way that is effective and helpful for your people. I pray for your grace then in the midst of my weakness. I thank you for this opportunity to stand before your people and to preach your precious word. Lord, we adore you as the chief object of our affection. And certainly I do that as a preacher of your word. This is your son is the chief object of our desires, Lord. And ever increasingly, we pray that that would be so for us. And then, Lord, we trust you for the results of this message that you will do good in your people. So come, O oh God, and bless this hour together, we pray. Come with your powerful presence and spirit and speak through your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Let me ask you a question. Did you know that God still speaks today? He does. I'm actually, I'm really not ashamed to say that. Um, some people are a little afraid to talk that way, but I'm not. I'm not afraid to talk that way. And um, let's be honest. I mean, aren't you interested in hearing from God yourself? Aren't you? I mean, if, if God's speaking, don't you want to hear from him? Don't you want his voice to come down and, and, and to, uh, to speak to you? Don't you want to hear him? I mean, I do. I remember a story uh, that Mark Dever told us once. The time when he was attending an InterVarsity fellowship meeting one evening at Duke University. And while he was at that meeting, in the middle of this meeting, there were all these students who were standing there in these chairs, and they had their eyes closed, and they were lifting their arms to heaven, sort of, so to speak. And as they were crying out to God, asking him, oh God, give us a word, give us a word. And they were crying out for God to speak. And just as they were doing this, something amazing happened. Mark was standing there, and he was kind of taking it all in, and then something just amazing took place. Just as they were asking God to speak, Mark saw laying frozen on all of their chairs the unopened Word of God. And he was thinking to himself, he's amazing. They're asking God to speak, and, and they're asking God for a Word, and he's giving them one right now. He's giving them an incredible word, but they couldn't hear it. They couldn't discern it. They couldn't see it because the Bible was unopened and laying lifeless in the chair. It makes a vivid point, doesn't it? Well, that is the issue that we come to this morning in Second Peter. We come to this issue of the prophetic word and why it is necessary. And that's what we're going to consider today. Let me just read those verses again quickly, 19 through 21. Peter says this. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And this is a pivotal text of Scripture. Now, up to this point in this series on Second Peter, um, we have seen that God's divine power, look at verse 3, has given us everything required, everything required for life and godliness. An incredible promise. 
It really, in some sense, this is the essence of the book of Second Peter. We have everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, then last week we saw that these false teachers had crept into the church or were on their way into the church, okay, who were teaching that the second coming is really not going to happen. These guys were coming along saying, hey, you know, what's this myth about Jesus coming back? If Jesus is really coming back, where's the proof? We don't see him. And, and there's this, this, this sort of mockery going on. We see that in chapter 3, verse 4. And, and these guys are saying this. And so Peter is really eager to correct this. And so what he does is he presents two lines of argument. And Pastor Mark mentioned the first one last week, which is his eyewitness account of the transfiguration. This, this, this amazing experience that Peter had on this holy mountain where Jesus... In all of his glory shone around them. And, Jesus, and Peter got a sample, a foretaste of what it would be like when Jesus comes back again in all of his glory. And that was really his first evidence was Peter says, look, I've seen him on the holy mountain. Jesus is coming back. I've seen a foretaste of that. Now, the second line of argument he brings today, which is, Okay, well, not only that, the reason why we know Christ is coming back is not only our eyewitness account, but the fact that it's rooted in the prophetic word of the Old Testament. So let's back up and ask this question. If everything we need for life and godliness comes through a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it does, okay, then how can we be sure that we have a true knowledge of Jesus? I mean, if everything we need hinges on our knowledge of Jesus, we better make sure we have a true knowledge of Jesus, right? Not some false idea. We need to have a real, clear, vivid picture of who Jesus is. And so that's what we get today. How can we be sure? And so in 19 through 21, Peter addresses this issue of Scripture. Now, this is obviously one of the most important passages in all the New Testament with regards to what we believe about the Bible. And so what I want to do is focus on Peter's exhortation here in verse 19 to pay attention. Think about that word, pay attention to the prophetic word, which he describes as a lamp shining in a dark place or a murky place or a dismal, dungy place. Pay attention to God's word. That means you should study it and spend time with it and meditate on it and then do everything it says. We are to Pay attention to this word. And that's why I've entitled this message this morning, Listen Up. God's word matters. Now, what I want to do with you this morning is show you three reasons from this text why God's word really matters. First, it came from God. Second, it's completely reliable. And third, it's a lamp for our feet. First, why God's word matters, it came from him. This is the first reason why you should pay attention because God wrote it. That's a pretty big reason, isn't it? Pretty, um, that's, that's the primary reason. Because God wrote it, you should pay attention to it. And that's a big deal. And that's Peter's point in verses 20 and 21. So let's start with sort of the, the back end of this text. Here's what he says in verse 20. Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's pretty clear. It's pretty crystal clear about where the word of God came from. One translation says, no prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. That's helpful. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. That's right. It came from God. Scripture comes from divine inspiration. As Peter says, men spoke, listen, as they were carried along, as they were driven along by the Holy Spirit. That, that word carried along or driven along is the same word used in Acts. When Paul is, Paul is on a ship after he'd been arrested and, and the ship is, is being tossed around by the sea, it's being driven along by the winds. And Paul uses that same word, Luke, excuse me, uses that same word to describe this experience of being carried along. So, with that said, as Christians, we do not teach, be really clear here, 
We do not teach that God used human beings as passive instruments in the writing of Scripture. Instead, we believe that God used the intellect, the skill, the personality of fallible men to speak and write what was entirely divine and infallible. Did you hear that? That's a very important statement. Let me say it again. We believe that God used the intellect, skill, and personality of fallible men to speak and to write what was entirely divine and infallible. This is the doctrine of Scripture. That means that as evangelicals, we do not believe in what's called a mechanical dictation theory. Okay, We don't believe that the authors of Scripture were just somehow caught up in this trance and they're sitting there and, and with their parchment and, and their quill or whatever they used and they're writing. No, we don't believe they're caught up in such a state. We believe that every biblical author wrote in the full range of his own skill and personality. After all, Peter says right here, men spoke, right? Men spoke out of their own personality. Men spoke out of their own giftedness. So the Bible was written by human beings. But at the same time, he says, they spoke from God. So God is behind all the writing that we see in Scripture. Men spoke the word of God as they were carried along, driven along by the Holy Spirit. So the natural question then is this. Okay, well then, is the Bible human or is the Bible divine? Well, in a way, we can say it's both, as long as we clarify what we mean by that. Jesus, as Christ, was, if you remember, fully God and fully man. And in the same way, this is a human book that has been written through human effort, but it's also completely divine and without error at the same time. It's a human book, but it's fully divine and without error at the exact same time. Now, of course, people will mock this idea in our day and age. But just because a belief is ridiculed doesn't make it false, does it? A great example of this is Copernicus. When he revealed that the earth moved around the sun, instead of the sun moving around the earth, people had a big time about that. They laughed. And, and it says in, in history that, listen to this, great, hilarious parties were held in which people walked around pretending that they were too dizzy to walk upright. Because, I mean, after all, who could keep his balance on an earth that moved? (laughs) Whoops. A little wrong there, weren't they? And today, people may find the idea of God's word or the second coming of Jesus hilarious. But I can assure you, dear friend, when Jesus comes back, that will not be hilarious. It will be breathtaking. And for those who are not in Christ, it will be the most awful, fearful, scary, dangerous, awful time of their existence. It will be nothing but fear and trepidation. There will be nothing funny or hilarious about that. And my friend, if you are here as a non-Christian this morning, you do not want to be guilty of that of thinking and laughing about Jesus and the word of God. I urge you not to laugh and joke about this word of God. It is not a joking matter. It is serious. Instead, I urge you to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus. If you're here as a non-Christian, we would love to help you do that as pastors. Come and seek us out. Talk to us. Get serious about the Bible. Get serious about your sin. Engage with God this morning. We would love to help you do that. Well, this is God's word. Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on this passage, he says, if I had no other reason for believing this to be the word of God, its realism would be more than sufficient. When I read the Bible, I know it's true because it does not hesitate to state the facts. It states them bluntly. It states them openly. And it's a great thing to have a book that you can trust. It's a great thing to read a book which is not just out to pay compliments and to make you feel what a fine and wonderful fellow you are. The Bible is realistic. It tells us the truth about ourselves. Isn't that great? And he's right. And I love that about the Bible. That's why I hate watered-down stuff. I hate watered-down coffee. I hate watered-down orange juice. I hate watered-down anything, really, you know? 
And, and, and this Bible, this Word of God is full strength. It's robust. The Word of God is not diluted. It's in your face, 100% unadulterated, 200 proof, absolute truth all the time. And that, and that means all of Scripture is from God, all of it. The parts that convict us and the parts that we like, the parts that we love to read and the parts that we don't really like to read. It's all from God, all 66 books, all 41,173 verses, all 3,566,480 letters or however that's calculated into the original manuscripts. But the point is, it's all from God. And there are so many people today that say, of course, they believe in God's word. But when you press them and you watch them live their life functionally, they don't believe the word of God. And so we come to a crisis. And as a church, we ask ourselves this question, do we believe the word of God? Doctrinally, absolutely, we believe the word of God. We emphatically believe that this is the word of God, all of it. And we state that unapologetically and without fear. We actually, think about this, we actually think that God wrote a book and the Holy Spirit chose the words. That's what we think. We believe that. That sounds pretty radical in our day. It's sad, but Charles Ryrie said one time in, in sort of elucidating this point, Charles Ryrie said that not many years ago, all you had to do to affirm your belief in the inspiration of the Bible was to say that you believe the Bible is the word of God. That's it. But as people attacked the scriptures, it became necessary to add that you believed in the inspired word of God. Later, you had to say that you believed in the verbally inspired word of God. And more recently, it's become necessary to say that you believe in the plenary verbally inspired word of God. And today you have to say that you believe in the plenary verbal inspired, infallible, inerrant in the original manuscripts word of God. It's ridiculous how liberal theology has attacked scripture so much and for so long that we, we have to keep adding descriptive words on the front end to talk about the truthfulness of this word. That's how far our society has sunk in their understanding of God's word. Let me explain what some of those words mean. Plenary just means cover to cover, okay? It just means the whole Bible. We believe the whole Bible from cover to cover was inspired. And verbal means that we believe God chose the words, not just the concepts. In other words, it's not like God was kind of a coach who's sitting in heaven saying, okay, um, let's see here. John, uh, John, why don't you write something about uh, my love for people? And John's like, except he's not typing, he's writing. He's like, okay, uh, God, let's see, God so loved the world that, yeah, yeah, that's good, John, great. Okay, finish that one. And then he's like, hey, Luke, uh, why don't you write something about a uh, story about, uh, do a, a runaway, um, a prodigal son. And Luke's like, yeah, great story. Okay, I'll, I'll write something there about, no. It's not like God is a coach who's sort of instructing his apostles to write some general concepts about God. No, Peter says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're moved by the Holy Spirit. God inspired this word. But here's the problem. You're sitting there today. You're saying, look, I believe that. I've been there my whole life. This is an obvious truth to me. And I'm glad. I'm glad that's an obvious truth to you. Don't take that for granted, friends. If you sit here this morning, this is an obvious truth to you. That is nothing but pure grace. Look around. Look around. Conservative, faithful churches that actually preach the word of God are so rare in this day and age. So this is a precious thing that you're here and you believe this. In the last hundred years, this has not been so obvious for people. Liberal theology caved under the pressure of our culture on this point, And it gave up on the inspiration of scripture long ago. Men like Karl Barth and other neo-Orthodox thinkers have argued for a long time that the Bible, listen to this, is so slippery. That the Bible contains the word of God, but it's not the word of God. In other words, the aim of these neo-Orthodox thinkers was to distance God from the text so that the words on this page Okay, and God's authoritative revelation are different. That was the aim. So these guys are famous for arguing that this isn't the word of God, strictly speaking, but it's merely a book that contains the word of God. Now, that's a subtle shift, 
But that's a deadly shift. Because this sort of thinking leads people to say things like, the Bible's important, but you surely don't want to say that you can confine God to words on the page, do you? Or someone might say, you evangelical Christians, you just keep insisting on on putting God into the box as if human language can somehow contain God. And all that sounds so noble and it sounds so good, but it's not. It's deadly and it's dead wrong. Because if God has chosen to reveal himself through these words, then it's not humility to back away from them. It's the height of arrogance. God's word matters. And the result is that people begin to think with this liberal theology that they can mold and shape the Bible to say whatever they want to say. So you hear people say things like, well, that's what the text means for me. What does the text mean for you? As if the text is fluid like that. But listen, people, people can try to bend and shape the Bible to say whatever they want, but that will not change the objective truth found in it. You can bend it any way you want, but God's objective truth will not be changed. And any attempt to do so is simply another attempt to keep God from exercising his rightful authority in our lives. But hear this. God is not into people messing with his book. I love Revelation twenty two nineteen. It's the third to last verse of the Bible. So it's kind of like God's closing out his book and he says, the last, third to last thing I want to tell you is this. Listen, if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share in the tree of life. <laughs> That's a pretty big warning, isn't it? This just hit me this week as I was thinking about that. I mean, in other words, if you, if you mess with this book, I'll mess with your eternity. Now, I know that first applies to the book of Revelation, okay? I understand that. But because the Bible is one message from God, it applies to the rest of Scripture. And it happens all the time today. We live in a society where people do not take God's word seriously. Look, we live in a Christian subculture, an evangelical culture where Christians don't take God's word seriously. Let me speak to us as a family here, as a church family, and talk about three kind of things that concern me right now regarding the word of God today and even how Christians respond to it. First, I'm concerned with this emphasis um, that we have. This seems to be an inordinate emphasis on study resources, on the notes over the sacred text. I'm concerned about that. Christians so easily fall into the trap of thinking that they need this book or they need this Bible study or they need this teacher to come along and help them understand the Bible and, and, and this DVD and this new curriculum. And, and there seems to be an over-reliance on the tool and not enough reliance on the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And that concerns me. Now, I'm in favor of using resources. You should, we, should, we should do the 33 series and we should read and, 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 and watch DVD Bible studies and things like that. But let's not first, friends, be students of MacArthur and Sproul and students of Beth Moore Let's sit alone with God's word in a quiet place and meditate and think hard and pray and ask God to transform us through his word. Let's first be students of God and then we'll be students of others. Second, I'm concerned with a culture that spends, this is such a joke, isn't it? More time marketing the Bible than reading the Bible. I walked into, books a million here has more Bibles than any Christian bookstore I've ever seen. Unbelievable. You walk through that aisle, it's to get every Bible you can imagine in there. I mean, and, 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 and inevitably, when you market the Bible, the Word of God gets diluted, okay? Because what happens is, you, you walk into the bookstore, and what do you see? You see the youth group Bible, the pastor's Bible, the farmer's Bible. What's that? I mean, the, the revival Bible, the women's study Bible, the men's accountability Bible, the businessmen's topical Bible. So, some businessman's sitting in there and he's like, look around, what would be like a good thing to think about? What in the world are we doing with the Bible? It's ridiculous. The next thing we're going to have is the underwater swimmers edition. It's, it's unbelievable. But what are we doing with the Bible? We're just marketing it, marketing it, marketing it. Where did this idea come from that we have to hit sort of every demographic of society and have a Bible for those people and a Bible for these people? 
why don't we do this? Instead of marketing the Bible, why don't we market the content of what's in it? Why, why don't we instead market the fact that this word will change your life? If you read this, if you dare to sit alone with this word, it will change you from the inside out. So read it and study it. That's the kind of marketing we need. Not, not a cool addition. You know, it's the other thing that's concerning about it is some of these study Bibles and stuff that you see, you can't tell what text is actually man's commentary and what text is God's word. It's actually embedded right in the middle and it's the same font. I mean, it's just a cheapening of Scripture. So I'm concerned about that. Third, another thing I'm concerned about is I'm concerned about versions of the Bible that are paraphrases and not translations. Now, I believe in verbal inspiration. We believe in verbal inspiration, that God inspired the very words and the very grammar of the text. So I'm very concerned with shoddy translations that are so free that they either miss the essence of the text or they no longer even qualify as translations. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. The book, the publication, The Message by Eugene Peterson, um, Th- those things are fat. That's a fascinating commentary on the Bible, but it's not a translation. Okay. It's even helpful. I, I don't have a problem with you reading that. It's helpful, but just understand that's not a translation. That's a commentary. It's one man's interpretation of the text. Well, if you want to talk more about Bible translations, I'd be happy to speak with you after the service. So these are just some things that concern me. And all that comes under the first major reason why the Bible matters, because God wrote it, and what God wrote really matters. Okay, so second, you should pay attention to the Word of God because it's completely reliable. Verse 19, look at 19 there. Uh, Peter talks about the certainty here of the prophetic word. Now, remember that the prophetic word refers to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I got to tell you that verse 19 is a very difficult verse to translate. Very difficult. And depending on how you understand the grammar there, there are various ways to render this. And so this is the part of the sermon where you're going to need to focus, okay? Because we need to look at the text carefully and do some analysis because every one of you probably is going to have a different sort of translation of this verse. That's because it's extremely difficult. But let me help you work that out. And uh, this is important. I usually don't go at this level, but it's important this morning to do this because we want to get God's word right. All right. The ESV, English Standard Version, translates verse 19 this way. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. All right. So according to this translation, Peter is saying that the Old Testament scriptures are more certain than his experience of seeing Jesus at the transfiguration. Do you see how that's kind of phrased there? We have something more sure, okay? Namely, the prophetic word, okay? So, in other words, the objective word of God, according to this translation, is more certain than what he experienced. And initially, that sounds really good. That sounds like a really helpful translation. It sounds safe. It sounds good. I mean, who would want to say that the word of God isn't like sort of the ultimate authority? Sounds great up front. But I don't think it's right to say that the Old Testament scriptures, for example, I'm not sure it's the best translation. Let me say it that way. I, I, I think to say that the Old Testament scriptures are more reliable than Peter's account of the transfiguration, I mean, that's concerning for a number of reasons. For starters, no one would want to argue that the transfiguration is somehow less certain than the scriptures because that happened. So I, I'm not sure the ESV is the best here. Although I would say that very humbly. What about the Holman Christian Standard Bible? Well, it goes in a totally different direction. (laughs) You'll see it. It says, so we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You do well to pay attention to it. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures have been confirmed by the transfiguration. Now, that's fascinating. That, that means that the transfiguration actually demonstrates the certainty of the Old Testament. Okay, you see the emphasis? Now, I think actually that's more likely, and most scholars go in this direction, but it still has some problems because it has to do with some of the complexities of the grammar. So where does that leave us? I mean, if neither option is ideal, and this is just part of the problem, 
that translators have when they go from the, the original source language into a target language is difficult, okay? If neither of those is ideal, I think the New English Translation has the best analysis here. And again, we'll put that on the screen. It says, the New English Translation, moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. And I think that's really helpful because this translation eliminates the comparison. Why, why should we compare between the reliability of Peter's apostolic testimony and the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures? I don't see the need for that type of comparison. There shouldn't be. So Peter, in fact, Peter's using both as arguments to support his claim that Christ will someday return. So the best understanding of verse 19 is that both Peter's eyewitness account and the Old Testament scriptures prove that the prophetic word is altogether reliable. And I, and I think that's the best way to render that. I'm really thankful for Dan Wallace and the guys who have spent so much time working on the New English translation. It's a very scholarly translation, and it's very well done. Extremely thankful for it. So now... Why did I spend time on all that? Okay, why, why do we do that? Because I'm kind of making a point about this sermon itself. Getting God's word right matters. If God has verbally inspired the word down to the grammar, then we need to get it right. And it, and it really matters. Okay, so back to Peter's main point here. God's word is reliable. What you have right there on your lap is something that's altogether certain. Again, Lloyd-Jones says this. Great statement. He says, I find it increasingly difficult to understand how everyone is not being driven in these days to believe in the Bible. I mean, is not the blindness of mankind rather amazing? This old book has always said nothing but the literal and sober truth. Is there any book that explains life like this book? Its prophecies are being fulfilled around us. Its diagnosis is being verified before our eyes. The truth of the Bible how we should thank God that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And for this reason, we should pay attention to it. It's another good word from Lloyd-Jones, and it's well said. And it shows us the, that the confidence that we have in the Bible is a pressing issue for us today. Don't be embarrassed, friends, when you talk about the Bible and your confidence in that as God's word. And Peter wants us to know that we can trust the testimony of the apostles. Pastor Mark made that clear last week from verses 16 through 18. And then he wants us to know that we can trust the words of the prophets, verses 19 through 21. So when you put those two things together, the word of the apostles and the word of the prophets, you really have the whole Bible, which is why Ephesians 2.20 says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ being himself the chief cornerstone. So the apostles and prophets make up really the whole Bible. The prophets pointed forward to Jesus and the apostles bear witness to Jesus and together they form the Bible. But Jesus is the message of the Bible. The law of Moses tells us that Jesus is needed. In the prophets, he's predicted. In the Psalms, he's worshiped. In the gospels, he's described. In the acts, he's proclaimed. In the epistles, He's explained, and in the book of Revelation, he's unveiled in all of his glory. This book is fundamentally about Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible is all about, and it's why gospel centrality is one of our core values at Heritage Baptist Church and always will be. But the broader point is that these are the very words of God, and because of that, it's reliable. It shapes who we are, and it informs where we go. So when we're planning and thinking, strategizing about our mission and vision, this thing right here is, is the basis. Not some clever ideas. This, this is it. This is the most relevant book that we have. It's what all of God's Word is so dear to us. I love Psalm 19. It's a major passage on this subject, and it contains an incredible statement about the sufficiency of God's word. In fact, just turn there for a moment, Psalm 19. Just flip over there. And what I want to do is let me just bend the nail over real quick on the sufficiency and reliability of God's word. Okay, let's just flip over to Psalm 19. Um, and in Psalm 19, we have some amazing statements about God's word. Beautiful. It's going to be a great psalm to memorize. It's not long. Um, I just encourage you to think through 
this text of scripture. Psalm 19. He, and in this passage, there's an incredible statement about sufficiency of God's word. And, and there you're going to see, and starting in verse 7, you're going to see six things, six statements about the Bible, okay? Verse 7, the, the word of God is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clear. And it's true. Great descriptions of, of the Bible. But it doesn't stop there. Psalm 19, in, in, in the psalm there, David goes on to say that the word of God not only is six things, but it does six things. It converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes and it endures forever. And it's true and righteous altogether. Amazing, amazing um, descriptions of the Bible. Now, that's not, just to be clear, what some red-faced preacher had to say about the Bible. <laughs> That's what God says about his own book that he wrote. And it's an incredible statement about the reliability of Scripture. Let me summarize it this way. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is so comprehensive that it's able to totally transform the inner man. It revives the soul. Anybody need some soul revival? Do you ever go through your week and, and get to a Tuesday or a Thursday and say, I'm so dead. I need revival of my soul. That's what the Word of God does. It's soul revival. Verse 7, God's testimony about himself is so reliable that it can take, listen to this, a foolish person and make him wise. That's incredible. Just, just, just simpleton, this foolish guy out here is throwing his life away and the word of God can turn that guy around. Verse eight, God's divine principles set such a clear path through the maze of life that it causes man's heart to leap for joy because he knows where to go and he sees the path in front of him. Verse eight, again, the commands of God are so pure and radiant that they can bring light into the darkness of any human heart, including your lost relative or family member who is so far from God. That's incredible. That's the word of God. And it's why, friends, we preach the word of God because this is where the power is. Not in clever, cute stories that we can come up with or nice things that we can show on the screen. This is where the power of God is. Your, is your marriage messed up? Are your kids messed up? Is your life hanging by a thread? This is where strength and hope and restoration come from. Is your kids, are your kids far from God? Read them the word. Do whatever you can to get the word of God in front of them. Friends, this is power. This is life. This is everything to us. We've got, we are a word that is, we are a church that's standing on the word. If we ever depart from, from that, leave, leave this place. And if you're ever not interested in it, I'm leaving because the word of God matters. Well, the third reason why the word of God matters is it's a lamp for our feet Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 19 where Peter is talking about the word of God. And he says this, he says, pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. You know, Peter's point here is very simple. And it's that the word of God is a lamp for our feet, so we should pay attention to it. And we should do that, not for a day or two. We should do that until the day dawns. What does that mean? Now, this verse is filled with colorful images here, okay, about the second coming of Christ. Dawn's a wonderful time. Anybody like to get up in the morning and watch the sunrise? Uh, if, you're, if you're not a morning person, you probably struggle with that. If you're a morning person, you're probably thinking about that regularly. Get up, I want to see the sun. Have a cup of coffee, and I want to watch the sun. Or you go to a beautiful place, the Smoky Mountains, or find a beautiful place, and watch the sunrise. It can be breathtaking, the beach. It's, a, it's, an, it's an awesome thing to watch the sun rise. And this imagery here is intended to communicate the emotion of that moment when Christ will return in all of his glory. And here he's referred to as the morning star. 
So the dawn will come. That's the day of the Lord. It will come. Jesus will come back. And the morning star will rise in your hearts. The morning star is Jesus. It's lifted from Numbers 24, 17, which says, A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. Jesus is that star. And what Peter has in mind here is the joy that will rise up in your heart when the Lord returns. Beautiful. But until then, the word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The point is God's word helps us walk through a darkened and sin-cursed world. I don't know how you, how you can survive without it. I don't know how you can go through your week without a steady diet of God's word. If you're not doing well spiritually, it could be examine yourself that you're just not reading the text. You're not reading the text. The text is meant to guide you and shape you and help you. Kids, let me give you a, an application here. Uh, children, listen to Pastor Jonathan for a moment. Have you ever gotten up in your out of your bed at night and try to walk to the door without the light and you fall down? Ever happen? You trip on something? You had a toy or something in your room and you trip over it? You stub your toe on something? Yeah, because you don't have a light. And the word of God is a lamp to your feet. And that's what God's telling you, children, that the word of God is a lamp to your feet. So when you're in your Sunday school class, listen to your teachers because they're sharing the word of God with you. When you are, when you are at Heritage Christian School, some of you go to Heritage Christian School, listen to Mr. Hoke as he teaches you the word of God in chapel. Listen to your teachers as they share the word of God before the class starts in the morning. Listen to the word of God. It's a lamp for your feet. Parents, parents, help your kids develop a habit of reading the Bible. Develop a schedule for them. Put it in front of them. Hold them accountable to it. Teach your children the discipline of reading the Bible. Read it in the home with them and then teach them to read it on their own. Friends, as a church, this is amazingly relevant for us. The word of God gives us stability. It's an anchor when we're drifting. It brings st- stability to a teenager whose world is shaken. It brings steadiness to a busy mom who or a broken mom who's all over the place emotionally. It brings strength to a tired and weary couple when they're fighting to just kind of keep their marriage alive. And they have no other hope. And they're losing hope every day, but then they open the Bible and some glimmer of hope comes to them. We can hang on. We can make this happen. This is your lamp. It's the book that tells you the good news about Jesus. It's the book that promises you eternal life and tells you about the forgiveness of your sins. It reminds you of God's perfect justice, that you can actually live in an unjust world that's not fair and that treats you so wrong because someday God will balance all the books. God is a just God. He'll take care of all the injustice that occurs in the world so you can hope in that. This is the word of God. This is our strength. This is our life. Just grab your Bible for a second. Hold it in your hands. Grab that thing and hold it. And, and, and just look at it for a minute. And, and just think about how precious this is. David says, more to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold is this word. That's a good imagery for us. There's nobody in here that wouldn't take a pile of gold if I offered it to you. And David says, this is more important. Is that true functionally for you? Or is that just some clever, cute saying? Oh, how I pray, how I pray. Would you begin to pray that God would fill your heart with that kind of desire? How about 2013? We pray for an unparalleled hunger for God's word. You see, because I'm convinced that what makes great men great is their constant pattern of prayer and their daily, earnest, intense study of this book. That's what separates great men and women of God from others who are just drifting, is that the word and prayer, the word and prayer, the word and prayer, that's it. That's what we stand on through Jesus. So let me close this way. Because I assume you're probably not sitting there saying, I am so hungry for God's word, it's unbelievable. I, I, I'm killing it on that front. 
I, I could coach people on how to be hungry for God. I, I doubt most of you are saying that. So, all right, you're, you're admitting I'm not hungry for God's word like I should be. I need help. God, help me. Let me close this way. Three ways to fire up your hunger for God. Number one, size it up. Size it up. Understand what's really in your lap. Think about this. You won't go out of your way to read this book unless you know how valuable it is. So size it up and recognize its worth. Reflect on that. George Mueller said this, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place we hold the Bible in our life and thoughts. So let me ask you a question. Do you love the Bible? Do you love the Bible? Check yourself. I wrote this down. Eight evidences a person loves the word of God. Eight evidences. One, they diligently read it. Two, they frequently meditate on it. Three, they delight in it. Four, they memorize it. Five, they would defend it to the point of death. Six, they prioritize it. Seven, they talk about it. Eight, they're being transformed by it. Those are eight evidences that you love the word of God. Or how about God's word preached? Here's six evidences a person loves to hear God's word preached. They're anxious to hear it. You come on Sunday morning hungry, eager. I just can't wait to hear the word. Bring it. I want to hear it. I'm praying for the pastor before I even get here. God, help him. Bless him. You're hungry for it. Number two, you're eager to apply it. Three, you listen to it as a matter of life and death. Four, you don't listen to it to gain knowledge merely, but you listen to it because you want to kill your sin. Five, you welcome the correction of the word. And six, you're willing to sit under a heart-searching ministry where you're convicted regularly and challenged regularly by, God, by God's word. <clears throat> you're not into fluffy sermons and fluffy presentations of the Bible. Well, that's the first suggestion. If you want to fire up your hunger for God, you need to size it up and understand its value. Number two, pick it up. Pick it up. I mean, that's an obvious thing, but you like actually read it. What we're looking for is wrinkled or wrinkled, worn out and greasy pages. That's, that's what we're looking for. Wear the Bible out. What we're after, because what we're after is life transformation. So don't focus on how much of the Bible you can read in a year. That's not a good goal. Focus on always. That could be a good goal, but focus more on reading deeply and reading meditatively and reading contemplatively. Learn to ask good questions when you, when you read the Bible, like these five questions from Tim Keller. Great questions. Here you go. Number one, when you're reading the Bible, ask, how can I praise God here? Or number two, how can I confess my sins on the basis of this text? That's a great question. Three, what's wrong, what wrong behavior or harmful emotions or false attitudes result in me when I forget this truth? Or four, what should I be aspiring to on the basis of this text? Or number five, why is God telling me this today? Oh, great questions. If you want those, I'll give them to you after the service. So size it up, pick it up, and then third, and finally, live it out. Because actually, when you live the Bible out, you begin to hunger more for it. It's not enough just to read the Bible. You must do what it says. And isn't that the point of James when he says, be doers of the word and not just hearers only, right? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has this great essay on this issue entitled for self-examination. It's fantastic. It should be required reading. And uh, in it, he says this, and I close with his his words, they're very, they're very helpful. Here's what he says about being doers of the word. Imagine a lover who's received a letter from his beloved. I assume that God's word is just as precious to you as that letter is to the lover. And if I'm with that letter, this is my wish. I want to be alone. Uninterruptedly alone with that letter. And so it is with God's word. 
The person who is not alone with God's word is not reading God's word. Alone with God's word. And when you are alone with God's word, understand that it was given to you so that you will act according to it. If God's word contains a wish, you should begin to comply at once. Do it for your conscience sake so that you can go to God and say, Lord, there are many obscure passages I do not yet understand. But where I saw a command that I did understand, I took care of that right away. Isn't that good? That should be our spirit. Let's be doers of God's word. Well, there it is, friends. Three reasons why you should pay attention to God's word. God wrote it. It's a big deal. It's completely reliable. And it's a lamp for your feet. Now, friends, listen, we don't worship this book. We worship Jesus. But we do trust this book and we do love this book. Because it tells us the truth about ourselves. And it tells us the truth about Jesus. And ultimately, let's read this book to fellowship with God and enjoy the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we confess readily that we need your help. We can't turn on hunger for your word like a light switch. We need your spirit to come and to help us in this capacity. So we ask by your grace and power and through the assistance of the Holy Spirit that 2013 will be a year that is radically shaped by the word of God as a church that we are built in and established on this truth. And as families, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, that we are, we are burning in our heart to read your word and are daily being transformed by it. So God takes such weak people as we are and with fresh gospel hope and the anointing of your spirit, come upon us and change us and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.